Here we go. Fold your hands, close your eyes. Let's pray. It's the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, I think. Almighty God, who sent your Son to rule over this world so that even the winds and the sea obey him, we pray now, give power to your own word, that your kingdom may grow and increase and all creation might be delivered into the glorious liberty of being your children. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, good to see you. Uh, lots of things to think about. Uh, first, thanks to Dr. Byans for the men's retreat and the women's retreat. Those were great. Yeah. Not, he was here. I don't know if he is here, but you can tell him in person when you see him, if he's here. He's right there. Good. Uh, so that was fun. And then thanks to Katie Engel and whom, whomever helped her, whoever helped her. That's nice. And also then to the vicar last night for... Um, you know, continuing his semin seminary education in beer selection and ice pouring. He was fabulous. <laughs> so, uh, the only thing, uh, he, was, he was good. The only glitch was he ordered paper plates for the men, which was good. They didn't come from Amazon, that was bad. He got out the regular plates, which is good, but he forgot that he could buy paper plates at Mariano's, which is bad. <laughs> I left early, so I don't know if the plates are washed, which would be good, or if they're still in there, which would be bad. <laughs> it's all part of being a vicar. So, and no, he did a great job. He did a fabulous job, so we're very, very happy. So, and thanks to John Crow and everybody else who helped and cleaned up, and Pastor Nelson was great too. So, uh, okay, things to think about. It's not that far from Ash Wednesday. If you're going to uh, fast or pray or both, you want to begin to think about that already. We've talked about that in the past. I don't know if I should talk about it again or if you have, sort of have it figured out. If you need a little help with that, um, come see a pastor. But it's the 22nd or something of February. It's not far away, so a couple of weeks. Uh, if you want to come back this Saturday, we'll do it all again. So same gig at 4.30. There's a reception for the bishops and presidents of the church bodies who are coming. There's a lecture at uh, 5.30 and then evening prayer at 7.00. And the music will be off the hook. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going to happen in, at, at evening prayer. So I'm um, really excited to sort of hear that. That'll, that'll be great, too. So the, the lecture at 530 is interesting because it's the, it's the bishop of the independent church body in Finland. He had written a pamphlet that said biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. He was arrested and charged with a hate crime. It's gone to court. He won. Uh, however, it's going to be appealed now. They're going to take him back to court. And of course, if he loses, then uh, that'll be really a difficult thing for churches, and that will extend to the whole EU, right? So it'll be a difficult, difficult problem. Uh, so it's interesting to, to see people kind of persecution in real time. So he's going to talk a little bit about that. So if you want to come, um, 4.30 for kind of having some fun, and then 5.30, I think, is the lecture, and then I think 7 is the deal. So uh, that'll be good. Now... What else? Have we forgotten anything else? Anybody we have to think about? Okay, so uh, here we go, back at it. Um, this whole notion of coming to church and why you would go to church and why anybody would go to church, although I just have to say, you know, it was church this morning, the first service was gorgeous. I, I say to Nathan, the music was so spectacular in the first service, and uh, I mean, it was just him and Peter, but still it was like just, you know, kind of, fabulous. Uh, so, so grateful for all the things that happened here. 
but you know, you know, why, why go to church and, and why give reasons to go to church and how does it work and why should you should be here? Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the answers is, you know, well, the first answer is because this is where you can get answers. So why do you go to church? All the answers are here. And that was kind of the hermeneutic that we started with. And we've talked about different reasons, right? Memento mori, remembering your death so that you can live, or living in humility, or um, some of the other things that we, we've talked about, how to, how to live in community, right? So you know, I'm turning the page here. And then I gave you, and I'm not going to read all this, but I gave you this because we've been away a few weeks. Uh, you know, just this notion that the church is otherworldly. And so, so much of the world is kind of focused on being a good person and you know, there's good persons and there's bad persons and then good is kind of a variable and you know, it changes and you could have been a good person 10 years ago and now you're a horrible person and you know, all this stuff, it's so, so societal and so you know, humanly focused. Well, you know, part of what we remember is the church isn't about being a good person, right? The church is about being holy, which is a completely different category of thing, right? Holiness only comes from God, and holiness only comes to you if it's bestowed on you, if it's given to you, if you're washed up in the blood of Jesus, if you're baptized and the Holy Spirit enters you. But this is a great little piece. I'm not going to read it all, but just to remind you, this is point two, right? Christian morality is more than anything society could ever propose. So holiness, not morality, right? Then the next paragraph. We're not called to human perfection. We're called to divine perfection, something only God himself can give. And that's the great Lutheran thing there already, right? That it's a gift from God. So we're called to holiness, and it's a gift from God. And then go down to the fourth paragraph. St. Paul is quite clear that this gift calls for us to be transformed. So you're not supposed to look like anybody else. You're supposed to look completely different. It's in the epistle for today about how everybody else thinks you're weak and foolish and Jesus thinks you're the best thing that ever happened. And because of that, the new creation is bring, brimming with life. So we're changed, we're transfigured, we're transformed, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then um, we should always remember, I'm going to skip down a couple more, where it says, God gives himself so that we can have the greatest honor ever imaginable. So partly the reason you come to church, we talked about this, is that God is here to honor you and God loves you, right? It's, it's remarkable that God not only gifts you, but honors you. So God shows you honor. It's amazing stuff. So that you can go out and live in Christ as a witness to the world. Now I'm turning the page. In short, your light is not for you, but rather is meant to shine forth for others so that we might be instruments of God's own self-gift. And this is hard for us to remember, but we talked about this a little bit at the community point where I said, you know, you come to church for me and I come to church for you. You know, of course I come to church for me. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to clean up. And for you too, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in your own life. But that's just part of the reason you're here. You come to church for me, and I come to church for you. Right? Read Hebrews, which even after last night continues to be in the Bible. <laughs> just checking, see if you're paying attention. Right? 
you know, why do you come to church? Don't forsake the assembly, right? You don't give up on, the, on what's going on here. So then the last thing, as Christians, we have new eyes, a supernatural viewpoint, the God's eye view of everything. So I've often said to you, to be a Christian is to see as God sees, choose as God chooses, love as God loves, speak as God speaks, do as God does. And so, um, you know, point number three is just kind of a reminder of this. You know, we can only be holy, but we can't do it on our own. Um, the Lord comes to us and gives us his holiness. And then life becomes a choice. And you remember we had the Didache, the very first line of the Didache, this manual about how to be the church, comes very early in the church. You know, 50 AD, 70 AD, people disagree about it. But the very first line of the Didache, how do you be a church? There are two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Choose the way of life. So once God comes to us and gives us the possibility of choice, we're supposed to choose well. So now then, here, uh, new stuff. The trouble is, holiness sounds uncomfortable to many of you. If we just talk about holiness, you know, you have this notion of bright lights and, and painful interactions and inadequacy and I could never measure up and I know I'm not holy or I think I am holy and that's pride, right? So the, the notion of holiness sounds uncomfortable. And if it's uncomfortable to you, as it can be for me, um, it just means that you haven't grown up yet. You're not really seeing things the way God wants you to see them. So. You know, you know, if holiness makes you uncomfortable, yeah, you're a damn sinner, and that kind of makes some sense. But look at this from Venerable Mary Magdalene. This is somebody who's on the way to sainthood, okay? Just kind of read this. I feel the presence of God, his infinite holiness, and my nothingness as if I have, as I have never felt it before. I butchered that. Let me go again. I feel the presence of God, his infinite holiness, and my nothingness as I have never felt it before. I seem to perceive that the paternal gaze of God, at other times so sweet, but now terrible because of its holiness, reveals to me my nothingness and humbles me. It seems impossible that a creature so vile as myself should see herself in God and in the splendor of his light. That's a bad day, right? I mean, you've all had good days and, um, you know, maybe been a bit too comfortable. I mean, you've probably had days like this too, where you actually consider yourself vile. And if you, <laughs> if you haven't, happy Lent. <laughs> you know, we're, we've, got a, we've got a program worked out for you. It goes about 40 days and we can help you with your problematic pride. But this is actually, you know, many of you have experienced this, right? This is how, you know, this is how shame works. This is how spiritual darkness works. This is how it feels to be alone and unloved. This is how it feels to be unworthy. This is how it is to be de-energized to consider yourself vile in the presence of God. It's one sort of problem. People have other problems, right? So this doesn't solve every problem. You know, this doesn't solve the, but just for today's problem, 
just for today, you know, people who feel vile or unworthy or unforgivable, then you've probably had that experience. Um, okay, here's the way out, and this is the reason you come to church, because you need a way out, which is you need to begin to see the whole world in an otherworldly way, or you need to see as God sees. And the honest truth, I mean, I'll give you the punchline now, God doesn't see you as vile at all. God sees you as holy. Kind of hard to believe. Pope Francis, it's kind of interesting, I think he drives his handlers crazy. There's things to like about him and things not to like about him, but he regularly gives these sermons and they get posted and stuff. And I saw a little clip from one this week, which was kind of interesting, where he talked about this very thing. And he was talking about, you know, you've sinned. He said, you should know that God forgets. When God looks at you, he doesn't remember that you have any sins. But you say, oh, my sins, my sins. And I say, but God forgets. Right? He forgets everything. And it's only our insistence that we're vile. It's only our insistence that our sins have to be held up. It's only our insistence that we can't be forgiven, which makes us so miserable. The only way to survive any kind of spiritual darkness is to move past the sense of vileness, even if you remain in the dark. Because, of course, as I said to you before, darkness doesn't affect the voice of God. Darkness can erase many things, but one thing it cannot erase is sound. Right? But it's very important to even if you're in a dark stretch, to remember that you're forgiven, to remember that God forgets, to remember that even if things seem as if uh, you are all alone, God nevertheless regards you as holy. So kind of point five. You know, if you come to this place where you think of yourself as vile, I would just give you this kind of spiritual direction, that you pause for a moment and take a breath, settle yourself, and then think about God as your creator who loves you. So God is not a stranger to you. God is a father to you. Um, Little sidebar for fathers. You should be a good father. If you're not, you screw everything up for your family because you block, obscure, corrupt, spend, you know, mutilate people's notion of who a father is. Priests who go bad ruin the notion of a pastor as a father, a spiritual father. Fathers who go bad ruin the notion of our Father who art in heaven, right? So it's extraordinarily important to be a good father because otherwise you get in the way. For you who've had horrible fathers, uh, you know, I'll say to you, the answer is not to stop saying the Our Father or to abandon God as your father. Um, The answer is uh, to tell the difference between a holy father who loves you and a bad father who doesn't. And the church is the one place where you can have a good father. In the same way, if you had a horrible family, 
You know, the church is the one place where you can have a fabulous family. Now, this is the thing. This is why you have to be a good community. You have to be a good family. I mean, the last two nights were fabulous. I mean, we had visitors from other churches, right? And so there was this, a couple of people talked to me, one man in particular, he's like, what exactly is happening here, right? <laughs> because there was this palpable, among the guys last night, there was this palpable joy of being together. Because it was a very interesting question. What exactly is happening here? So, you know, if you had a bad father, you come here and have a good father. And if you've had a bad family, you come here and have a good family. This is how it works. You don't despair of every father everywhere all the time forever. You don't despair of every friend or every family or every community all the time forever. If you do that, you, you go through life lonely and unloved and you will feel vile. You'll feel horrible your entire life. It's unnecessary and dumb, D-U-M. So, uh, it's for you, Timmy. So, uh, you know, God is not a stranger, but a father. He's our father. And look at this, you know, very crisp analysis, you know, St. John Paul II. Original sin attempts to abolish fatherhood, placing in doubt the truth about God who is love and leaving us only with the sense of master-slave relationship. Right? If you, if you live in a family where your father is always meant to be served, you know, when you were a child and you had to do everything your father said and basically be a slave to him, there probably wasn't much love there. And if you raise your children as, now it's my turn to be the one to whom everybody's enslaved, that's not love either. To love is to, to serve, to love is to do good. And so you want to be able to say of God your Father, hey, come and show me your face. Look how beautiful this. Come and show us your face, O Lord, who are seated upon the cherubim, and then we will be saved. Which is a very brave notion that you could see God face to face. I'm turning the page. Look at this bit from Bonhoeffer. God is not ashamed of human lowliness. So that would mean then that God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of human lowliness, but goes right into the middle of it, chooses someone as an instrument, and performs the miracles right there, where they are least expected. God draws near to the lowly, loving the lost, the unnoticed, the unremarkable, the excluded, the powerless, and the broken. What people say is lost, God says is found. Now this is very important, right? There's a worldly way to see things and an otherworldly way to see things. There's a human way to see things and a divine way to see things. There is a destructive way to see things and there's a healing way to see things. There is an unholy way to see things and a holy way to see things. Look at how he, look what he does with this. It's just genius. What people say is lost, God says is found. What people say is condemned, God says is saved. Where people say no, God says yes. Where people turn their eyes away in indifference or arrogance, God gazes with a love that glows warmer there than anywhere else. Where people say something is despicable, God calls it blessed. When we come to the point in our lives where we are completely ashamed of ourselves and before God, when we believe that God especially must now be ashamed of us, 
and when we feel as far away from God as ever in our lives, that is the moment in which God is closer to us than ever, wanting to break into our lives, wanting us to feel the presence of the holy. Isn't that interesting? He could have said warmth or friendship or, you know, a, a good gift. No. What does God want you to have? Holiness. Because if you have holiness, then you have everything else. Wanting us to feel the presence of the holy and to grasp the miracle of God's love, God's nearness and grace. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, of course, you, you're clever. You sorted out the, the instrument Bonhoeffer talks about is Jesus in the flesh. But then this next bit, and uh, you know, I was reading through this this morning and I didn't give you the footnote, I apologize. This is from Henry Nouwen and I will get it for you next week if I can find it somewhere again. But then look at this, how you, you know, it follows up. When St. John says that fear is driven out by perfect love, he points to a love that comes from God, a divine love, an otherworldly love. He does not speak about human affection, psychological compatibility, mutual attraction, or deep interpersonal feelings. That's all the way the world speaks. And Nouwen was interesting because he, he, he was a PhD in psychology as well, so he knows of what he speaks. But this is so interesting. See, so you could translate this as, there's a worldly way to speak about your life, psychologically, or in terms of your attractions, or in terms of about your feelings, which is completely the way our world is right now. You can redefine anything based on how you feel, right? And you all know the implications of that. And it's because it's just, you know, I'm the source and end of all things. So I can define the world how I want. Of course, you know, the pushback against that, of course, is that you die. Gods don't die. And if we were each gods, if we were each masters, if we could really define our reality, if we really could say, you know, A is B and B is A, if we could really do that, we would live forever. Death is the great proof that we are not who we say we are. But, right, all of that has its value and its beauty, but the perfect love of which St. John speaks embraces and transcends all feelings, emotions, and passions. I thought of Brother Roger of Tizay, you know, years ago, a decade ago, when the brother was here from Tizay, and he said to us, you know, somebody asked him a very pointed question about pain and suffering, and I remember still, such a beautiful answer. God's joy is so great as to contain all our sorrows and still be joy. It's remarkable stuff. Same thing that Nouwen says here, right? The perfect love that drives out all fear is the divine love, the holy love in which we are invited to participate. The home, the intimate place, the place of belonging, therefore, is not a place made by human hands. So all the notions of what we can construct in terms of families and marriages and who we are and what we do, yeah, no, those are all, all, all our ideas and they're as strong as we are and we aren't that strong. It is fashioned for us by God who came to pitch his tent among us. Of course, that's John 1, the incarnation, who came to tabernacle among us, invite us to his place and prepare a room for us in his own house. And so the reason you come to church is that God is not ashamed of you. In fact, God is 
seen it all before and still loves you and then blesses you with a community and a life that is otherworldly, that is divine. It is too good to be true. It's like when the disciples, you remember in one of the gospels, they go to the tomb and it says, I think it's Luke's, Luke's gospel. It says, they saw the tomb was empty and they disbelieved for joy. It's too good to be true. That God would actually love us, that God would be my father, that the Holy Spirit would live in me, that Jesus would come in the flesh and die for me, that he would create a community, that he would meet us here each Sunday and care for us. It's too good to be true, right? So you move through life in this otherworldly sort of way, right? You, you can't be dominated by, you know, the, the great angst of the last three or four years where we let our view be the world's view. And you can easily name things that corrupted us, the will to power, anxiety, right? Um, the um, diminishment of other human beings. You, know, you can kind of go on and on about all the things that troubled us. These were all worldly points of view. The church is meant to be something different and opposite all of that. So, you know, I know sometimes, <laughs> once I said to somebody here, why don't you come on Sunday mornings? They said, that's not Bible study, Ugh. right? Because of course, what I need to do is give you a Bible verse. So here we go, okay? Because I actually do have a Bible and I know how to use it. So here we go. <laughs> See, the point is, you know, <laughs> It's not just about proof, you know, mem proofing memory passages, right? So here you go. How does your holiness happen? Our holiness starts with God's love for us. And just, I just can't tell you enough. This is kind of a basic argument that I have with a lot of pastors and theologians who, who I just, in my estimation, can't get this right. That God is pure love. And in him is no wrath by nature. And if you want to have a Bible study, there's your text. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. You'll never get any of this right. You'll never ex experience escape from the vileness you see in yourself. You will never feel forgiven, nor will you ever experience light or fullness or a joyful walk home. You will never experience that if you presume that God is wrath and his primary interest is in destroying you, settling a score, having you explain why you're not better at being his daughter or his son. God is love. And from that love, most clearly expressed in the flesh and blood of Jesus, God tells us very simply what he's come to do. Jesus, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. I spoke these things to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I came so you'd have full life. I came so you'd have full joy. I came so you would rejoice in something otherworldly that 
sort of looks like Eden and someday will be fulfilled in, you know, the great stuff of Revelation that you heard about last night. So, um, Jesus blesses us with that every time he touches us. And you know that he can touch you in the ear and he can touch you, you know, on the skin and he can touch you, you know, on the tongue. It's a beautiful thing when kids come and you play in the font. I've said this to you before, but we can always tell the visitors, they stop their kids from playing in the water. <laughs> and the members let their kids play, right? And the kids are so careful after the first time they hug it. After that, <laughs> after one brisk change of clothes or a cold drive home, after that, but it is, it is a beautiful thing when you sort of have kids. Like, and Pastor Nelson, of course, is genius because he does these pastor chats thing where they've you know, dropped fish in the font and they floated boats in the font and they've, you know, I mean, all this, but what happens and the font becomes people's friend, right? It's an old friend. You know, it's an old friend. You're like, ah, this is where I got saved. It's beautiful stuff. So, you know, Jesus comes and he touches you, you know, airwaves on your eardrums or body and blood on your tongue or his holy name with water on your skin. Yeah, I mean, this is great stuff. And then, and I've um, turned the page, the Father and the Son send you their Holy Spirit. I mean, I, this is beautiful because, you know, somebody in New Members yesterday asked about the filioque clause in the Creed, which is a pretty sophisticated question. Does the Holy Spirit come from the Father or just from the Son? Weirdly enough, somebody asked that question of Pastor Nelson also as we were getting vested today. You know, Pastor Nelson sort of leans back. I, this, is the only, this is the only place in the Missouri Senate where some pastor leaned back and he said, well, you know, at the Council of Toledo, you're kind of going, the Council of Toledo, you know, because Spain was and they were, but the East wasn't invited because it was really, I'm just like, this is fabulous, man. I love living here, right? <laughs> There's nobody else in the Missouri Senate this morning talking about the Council of Toledo in their vestry as they're getting ready. Because, you know, it's, uh, so, I mean, that's, uh, you know, so let me just take you back where we started. When you feel vile, you pause for a second to remember your origin, that God is your Father who loves you, expressed in his Son, Jesus Christ, who comes to be like you. And together, they give you their Holy Spirit. And you remember we started with, why come to church? because God's not ashamed of me. Why is God not ashamed of me? Because God himself has made me holy. How does God himself make me holy? With his Holy Spirit, who then point me back to Jesus and to my heavenly Father. Right? So Jesus says, if you love me back, I love you, if you love me back, you'll keep my commandments. And that, that's the kindest thing, you know. He, he shows you what's good for you. Your sins just aren't good for you, right? But Jesus loves you, so he explains to you not just how to survive, but how to flourish, how to move through life in holiness, how to move through life in love, how to have a community that cares for each other, the things to avoid like hate and gossip or sloth, not coming to church, the things to avoid being miserly or being envious. These things will be very bad for you. These things will be really good for you. 
That's not how somebody talks to you when they hate you or have a heart of wrath. That's how, that's how somebody talks to you when they love you and want you to flourish. I love you. And if you love me back, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll even ask my father, and he's gonna send you a, and this is a, you know, the weakest possible translation of this word, a helper. It's kind of like, that feels like somebody who carries your bag up to your hotel room. You know, you want, you want a little bit more. And I've given you the, work there, uh, the word there is paraclete, right? The paraclete, which sometimes it just comes through, which is, now here's, here's what a paraclete is. A paraclete is a defense attorney, a wise old uncle, um, someone who puts their arm around you and holds you tight when everything has gone wrong. A paraclete is an advocate. A, a, a paraclete is somebody who speaks before you can speak. You, have you ever been in a jam? Like where somebody, and somebody, you know, older than you sort of steps in and makes it right? You don't quite know what to say. You don't quite know what to do. You've never seen this before. I mean, you've never chilled beer for 70 guys before and you don't know that the beer, the ice goes on the top and not the bottom? It's like that. A paraclete is somebody who stands at our side and pleads for us, put the ice on the top. <laughs> right? That's a paraclete, somebody who loves you and guides you forward. And when that happens, it keeps you from being dumb, or worse, from wounding yourself, or worse, you know, cutting off a lot of avenues, or worse, ruining relationships, or worse. It can get worse. So your father loves you and he sends his son and his son loves you too and they send you the Holy Spirit and your Holy Spirit comes to you to make you holy and when you're holy your life is full and your joy is full even if your life is painful. It's extraordinarily important that our lives are defined by joy and not by happiness or especially by pleasure. If I had to say, you know, what defines America right now? is a search for pleasure. It could be disguised as a search for security, but that often goes with people's pleasure. It's, a, it's a, been seen a thousand times before in human history, and it never works. It always ruins society because people can't bound their pleasure. They can't show discipline. They, end up using everything and everybody else as an object for their own desires. And that, of course, sets everybody against everybody else, and everybody hates everybody else, and then everybody does violence to everybody else and destroys everybody else. That's the last four years in America, theologically speaking. So, you know, you wouldn't want to do that because your sins just aren't good for you. It's unholiness, and it has an unholy or disastrous outcome. So to help you not do that, the Lord forgives you, and then he sends you his Holy Spirit. These things happen simultaneously, actually, at your baptism or the Holy Supper or when you hear the word of God. God gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can be guided into holiness, so that your life can be joyful. Not always happy, the Beatitudes today, but always joyful. Joyful is when, to use business speak, your values are aligned with the Lord's values. Or there's an alignment between you and the Lord, right? 
when your story matches his story. When you do as he does, say as he says, see as he sees, love as he loves. That's joy. And so then, at point 10, you've heard me say this a thousand times to you, but here it is in the scriptures, because this really is a Bible study. <laughs> touch good, don't touch evil. Here it is, two times. Test everything. So how do you test things? Discerno, right, is the Latin word for you can tell this from that. This is when, when kids, you know, people say, you know, why do kids come to the, to the Lord's Supper so soon? And what's the test? Right? They need to discern, that's the word in 1 Corinthians 10, that this is the Holy Supper. This is easy. You hold up a piece of Wonder Bread, you say, what is this? They go, Wonder Bread. And you hold up this, a host, and they, what is this? They say, Jesus. Okay, you're in. Beautiful. <laughs> you have to be able to tell the difference between this and that. So you come to church, and the Holy Spirit talks to you through the Scriptures, and talks to you through baptism, and talks to you through the Eucharist. And then you learn to tell the difference between this and that, between unholy and holy, between good and evil, right? Between what God wants and what you want, you learn to tell the difference. Discern, test, weigh, sift is actually the Greek word here, sift everything, and then you just touch the things that are left in the sieve. All the junk falls out and the good stuff is still there, right? Test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from evil, or, again in Romans, abhor evil, cling to good. Now, lest you think um, this is something less than Lutheranism, actually everything else that I've given you for the next 18 or, or 10 points or so is quotes from the Confessions. And, you know, for those of you who are nervous about, you know, quoting the Pope or this or that, first, calm down. And then second, look, there it is in the, it's not my fault if the last three popes have looked like the Lutheran Confessions. That's not on me. <laughs> They're doing that all by themselves, okay? That's not, that's not on me. So, uh, you know, here it is, number 11. The large catechism of recent fame. <clears throat> Just checking who's reading their blog posts. Uh, now we are only halfway pure and holy. The Holy Spirit must continue to work in us through the Word daily. There you go. We're halfway there. We're only halfway pure and holy. In us, through the Word, daily granting forgiveness, which is to say holiness, until we attain the life where there'll be no more forgiveness when you're completely holy, not halfway holy, which is to say, on the day that you go to heaven. Which means then, this is point 12, that holiness is the most practical thing that exists. Right? It can be this frightening word if you think holiness is a way that your Heavenly Father wants to beat you down or judge you. But if you understand holiness as the forgiveness of sins, and when you understand Jesus' holy touch is the holy touch that saves you, or when you understand that Jesus' judgment on you is that he judges you righteously and as righteous, when you understand that God loves you, your whole life changes. And you can hardly be anything else. You know, the great couple of great Nagelisms at the bottom of that page. Bruzek, it's not a good work until it's a forgiven work. 
A holy thing is a forgiven thing. There you go. And of course you turn the page and there's the small catechism looking at you. Where there is forgiveness of sins, where there is holiness, where there's righteousness, where there's justification and sanctification that follows, where there is forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation. So I just want to close with this. I, I've, you know, this is a piece I showed you years and years and years ago, but I just, I can't, so let me just say the punchline so I don't forget. John Kleinig, you know, once said to us, you don't possess the Holy Spirit. You pray for him every day. And I want to encourage you in that, that you would pray that God's Holy Spirit would come to you and make you holy every day. But then this little piece from, uh, you know, that I discovered, I was on a retreat uh, some years ago, and the monks were reading this book aloud at, is a silent place of silence. So there's no speaking except at the meals. One monk, and this goes way back to Lutheran earlier than that, one monk reads a book as you eat. And you know, by my good fortune, this is the book that was being read. I, you know, you sort of, you wanna jump out of your skin and say, isn't this great? But of course, it's a silent retreat. So, you know. On Pentecost. The wind blew away all the chaff in the disciples' lives. And the fire burned up everything in them that wasn't part of love. That's the same thing that happens to you. The Holy Spirit blows away everything in you that's, you know, chaff. And the fire burned up everything that wasn't part of love. The sound of the wind became the sound of the word. And the burning tongues became the proclamation of the gospel. This isn't something little, nor is this something in the past. No! It is not something little, right? Next paragraph, but why, for what purpose? Why Christmas, why Easter? Pentecost is the answer. Everything Jesus did, he did in the spirit. Remember his baptism, the spirit descended on him, right? Everything Jesus did, he did in the spirit, moved by the spirit, and he did it all so that the spirit might come upon us. Do you know that? That's the reason Jesus got baptized. He didn't have any sins to get forgiven, but you did. And he was quite connected to the Holy Spirit, but you weren't. And he was quite holy, but you're not. And so, everything that Jesus did, he did in the Spirit, and he did it so that the Spirit might come upon us. Go to the bottom. It is he who enables us to live Christ-like lives. It is he who gathers people of every nation together, brings them to faith, brings them into the church, and reconciles the world with God. No, this is not a little thing. Not a little postscript to the story of Jesus. It is rather what everything leads up to. This is my greatest concern, I think, about the Missouri Senate right now. We have lost this notion that the world is ours to evangelize. And we have turned inward and become more sectarian because we've become holier than thou. There you go. By the way, the bishop sent me a text this morning at 6.17 a.m. that said, I've stopped to pray for you. Isn't that, what a nice bishop. Dr. Buss, that was a kind, I wrote, I said, I'll stop and pray for you too. God bless you, my child. It was, it's rather what everything leads up to. The Father sent the Son into the world so that through the Son, the Spirit might transform the world, transform you, make you holy, make you worth something, that you'd be an instrument in the image of Christ. We believe and we've been baptized. We have reconciliation. We eat the body of Christ. 
And when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. When we do not know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. What it is that makes the human being a complete human being? But if body and soul are filled with the Holy Spirit, as God intended it, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, we are as God intended us to be. The Holy Spirit is not an option, but our deepest need. Isn't that great? All right. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, see you soon. Thanks.